out, bases empty, last of the fifth inning. Milwaukee two, Brooklyn nothing. Don Newcomb and Bob Buell. Newcomb staring in and kind of pinwheeling that bat like a pendulum. Now we're ready. The one and two pitch to Henry. Cut on and lined in the right center, slicing away from Snyder. That will roll to the wheel. Snyder after the ball is up with it. Aaron is around second and holds right there. As Gillian gets the ball back to the infield. So Aaron, who was robbed of a base hit on a great running play by Pillow, placed this one in the deepest right center that hooked away from Snyder. And by the time the Duke could run it down, Henry had a double. So Henry Aaron is two for three. The Dodgers to a man would certainly like to find out how in the world to fix to him, though I imagine the rest of the National League feels the same way. Vin, this day every year is a special day for everybody involved in baseball, but it must be even more special for you. What are your emotions like on the 15th of April every season? Well, because I go back so far with the ball club, because I knew Jackie reasonably well, I also am thrilled when Rachel shows up because I have nothing but the best and highest regard for her. Uh, So it brings back the memory not only of Jackie, but what happens is it brings back the memory of all those other players who played with him and against him. Uh, I first met him in spring training of 1950, so he'd already been up a couple of years. And the first road trip, actually the end of the spring training, we left Vero Beach to go to New York by way of Texas. So that's quite a trip. And uh, we lived on trains and would uh, get to a hotel to take a shower and move on. And it brought the team together. And probably one of the the great things that happened to Jackie and for Jackie was the thought that uh, Mr. Ricky had about Vero Beach. Vero Beach was a former naval air station and the Dodgers were able to lease it for a dollar a year from the government. And the best part about it was uh, for those black players who eventually came into the organization, there was nowhere to go. Uh, They couldn't go to any of the cities really in, in and around Vero Beach except for one small town called Gifford. And it was a black city, really, a black community, mostly all black people who worked in the area. So the only were, only place a, a black Dodger could go would be to Gifford. And there wasn't anything. There was a pool hall there. I know that. And I know some <laughs> of them shot pool. But that's about all they had. The positive about that was being restricted on campus, so to speak, uh, brought us all together, much more so than it would be today. Today, they'd be gone as soon as practice is over. But living in Vero Beach at Dodger Town, you had to amuse yourself with others. And that brought Jackie very close to all of his teammates, along with Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb. I can remember as a kid broadcaster after dinner, sitting outside the dining room, and Roy Campanella would sit on a little wooden bench. We eventually had a sign Uh, Campy's bullpen and Campy would sit and tell stories and uh, the rest of us would sit around and ask him and he would talk about the the so-called in those days Negro Leagues and Roy would talk about playing three games in three different cities in one day but the point of it is it brought us so much closer together and I think it eased Jackie's uh, entry into organized ball or at least the majors. 
On the broadcast tonight, Dodgers fans will be able to hear you talk about countless stories about Jackie Robinson. What is your favorite Jackie Robinson story? Well, I'm not sure if it's my favorite, but it's certainly appropriate for tonight. Uh, we were on the road in Cincinnati many, many years ago in the very early 50s. And uh, although Jackie had received threatening mail of sorts, uh, the one when we were going to Cincinnati was taken very, very seriously. And there was a tremendous police presence on the rooftops of the ballpark, on the roof of the uh, old laundry, which was back a left field, on the roof of the post office, which was down the right field line. They were everywhere. It was that serious. And uh, before the game, they had the usual team meeting, but there was a lot of tension in the air. We were all aware of the possible threat. And uh, while all the players sat there with the coach and the managers, everybody, uh, we had a left fielder named Gene Hermansky, who was from Brooklyn. Big, blonde, good-natured, happy-go-lucky guy. And the room was pretty quiet. And all of a sudden, Hermansky said, I've got it. And everybody kind of straightened up and looked at him and said, what? And Gene said, we'll all wear number 42, and nobody will know which one is Jackie. Well, it broke up the room. It broke the tension. And little did we know that Gene's suggestion would eventually come to pass. Because tonight, like Gene said, everybody will wear number 42. And I think that's probably my favorite story. That's a wonderful story. Vin, you're such a gentleman with your time. We appreciate it so much. And you're such a gentleman. You won't let me call you Mr. Scully. So with that in mind, Vin, thank you for your time. It's been an absolute honor. Aaron, thank you very much for the privilege of talking to the good folks up in Seattle. I grew up a Giants fan here in the Bay Area. And the Giants played mostly day games in those days at Candlestick, the early 60s. Tuesdays and Fridays were the only days of the week that they would play a night game. Because it was too cold was the only reason I could figure. Yeah. Now comes September, and they're in a pennant race with the Dodgers. 62 was a, one, of the, one of the great pennant races. And they finished tied, and they had the best of three playoff to determine the pennant winner. And so the Giants would play in the afternoon, and then I would tune in the Dodgers. They were on a very powerful station, KFI, 50,000-watt station. And at nighttime, it'd come, it would come in like a local station here. And I'd listen to Vinny do, do those games. And so I heard Vinny a lot as a kid. And I was a total Giants fan. I hated the Dodgers. I hated Maury Wills especially. And I thought, uh, and, and, and Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons had home run calls. Russ would say, uh, you know, tell it, bye-bye, baby, when the Giants hit a home run. And you get goosebumps if, as a Giants fan. And, you know, Lon would tell it, goodbye, and it goosebumps again. And I heard Vinny do a home run. He was like, oh, way back in, she's gone. You know, I remember thinking as a 10-year-old, oh, no wonder he's working on a jerkwater town like L.A. <laughs> yeah, that's all he's got. I'll tell you one thing. He's never going to get out of that town. That. <laughs> and that was the one thing I was right about as a 10-year-old. You know, all these years he, he was still there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 67 years. But when you used to have a lot of young guys. You'd get tapes from guys uh, hoping to get a shot in the big leagues. And for a long period of time, they all sounded like Vince Scully. Yeah. It's as if they all said, yeah. how do you do this thing? Well, he's the best, so I should just sound like Vince Scully. And, and I thought, well, that's a great tribute to Vinny. And then, uh, so I would say, uh, then we went to Japan, and I had a chance at long last to hear the legendary voice of the Tokyo Giants, uh, Genshiro Asami.
who is a real guy, by the way. <laughs> I hope so. And so I knew of the legend of Asami-san, but I'd never heard Asami-san. So I had a great sense of uh, anticipation. I turned on the, the TV to at long last hear him, and it put me off a little bit because he came on and he was doing Vinny. No way. Otashi wa karako in the stadium ni orimas. Hajime mashde dozyarushku lo. I actually That's had a chance hilarious. to do that with Vinny one night on a, back in the, sometime in the 80s. He was still doing the game of the week on NBC. Yeah. And I was with the Orioles in Seattle. Ah, Seattle, you beautiful town. If you have a it chance is. to get up there, I'd go. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Spend as much time as you can up there. I'm playing it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the guy ultimately asked about the Vin Scully impression. Yeah. So Vinny's in a studio in New York. I'm in a studio in Seattle. And we're in some satellite hookup. So I do the Vin Scully in Japanese thing. And now Vinny, in New York, he starts speaking Japanese, which I thought, whoa, now that's cool. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, and I had another bit where he's down in, uh, I, I go to Venezuela and hear the Venezuelan broadcaster and, uh, uh, you know, Cal Ripken tiene 27 home runs in el año detrás. Ripken viene a bola, saca, foul. Dos y dos. El partido de baseball con Farmer Juan. <laughs> so, anyway, the, at the very end of the thing, the guy says, uh, well, then he, uh, John does this little impression of you, and uh, how do you feel about that? And he says, uh, well, I can see that there's a fine line between having fun and making fun, but I take it as all being done in good fun. Although, I will say, I'm much happier being the imitatee rather than the imitator. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> no. So now I'm, feel I leave the studio and I'm walking downtown. I'm heading over to the Pike Street Market or whatever. And mm. I'm thinking to myself, having fun, making fun. <laughs> and uh, having an imitatee. And I'm thinking, wow. And this is 20 minutes after things over. I'm thinking, did he just cut me up into a thousand pieces? <laughs> And you and never I'm do just it. now realizing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the great Vin Scully. Vin, how in the world did you go from Fordham University and a year later you're in the broadcast booth with Red Barber and Connie Desmond? What do you remember about your first broadcast with the Brooklyn Dodgers? The very first game was a, an exhibition game in Vero Beach, the Dodgers playing the Philadelphia Athletics. Jimmy Dykes was the manager, and Cornelius McGillicuddy, Connie Mack, was right there. And just the way you imagined him in the dark suit, the celluloid collar, the straw hat, exactly, I met him. And in the course of that game, sitting alongside Red, scared to death, uh, I used to do one inning, or, you know, they would bring me along. And in that game... Uh, I forget who did it, but a Dodger hit into a triple play. And Red called it so effortlessly, so easily. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what would I do in a mess like that? <laughs> and he made it sound so easy, you know. Right. So that was the very first game, yeah. I recall as a kid growing up on the south side of Chicago listening to Jack Brickhouse mm -hmm. and Vince Lloyd and Lloyd Boudreaux. Lou Boudreaux and Bob Elson, and Bob Elson yeah. in Chicago. And I thought, you know, that's what I want to do. When was the seed planted in your mind that you wanted to be a major league broadcaster? 
When I was eight years old, which is right after the discovery of fire, uh, I was in grammar school and the nuns wanted us to write a composition on what you wanted to be when you grew up. And uh, the boys all wanted to be doctors, lawyers, policemen, uh, firemen, etc. And the girls wanted to be ballet dancers and movie stars and whatever, yeah. nurses. And uh, I wanted to be a sports announcer at eight. Now, remember, in those days, I think the only thing we had was college football on radio. We had a big old radio in the living room, and I used to crawl under the radio and listen to the game with my head on a pillow on the crossbar that kept the legs together. Uh So my head was directly underneath the loudspeaker. So when the crowd would roar, it was really like water coming out of a, a shower head, and it would thrill me. And I used to lay there listening to whatever game, Tennessee, Alabama, meant nothing to a kid in New York, but the crowd absolutely hypnotized me. And that's when I thought, A, I'd love to be there. B, I'd love to be doing what that fellow Ted Using is doing or Bill Stern. Or, and uh, that's where it started at eight. Vin, the Dodgers make the move from Florida, Vero Beach. They were there for many, many years, and now they're here in Arizona for the second year at this beautiful complex. But going back to the 50s, what was it like when the Dodgers left Brooklyn? How tough was it for the fans there because the Dodgers were beloved, they were a neighborhood ball club, and how tough was it for you to make that move to the West Coast to Los Angeles? Well, remember the Giants also left, but the Giants didn't draw the attention uh, that the Dodgers drew. And it was painful to some extent to tear up your roots because everything I had in this world was back there. Uh, I was just in the process of getting married, so at least I was starting a new life in many ways. So I did look forward to that. Above all, I was extremely thankful that I had the job because I found out there was a lot of controversy in Southern California. Uh, The Dodgers should use our local announcers, but Walter O'Malley was a man who really uh, thrived on loyalty. And uh, Jerry Doggett and I were kept and brought, uh, you know, to uh, Southern California. And it didn't take that long to uh, enjoy it. Everything was fresh and new. Uh, We missed Brooklyn, of course, but we didn't go back to New York, remember. Uh, We were in L.A. in in 58. We didn't go back to New York till 62. So there was a, a nice period there of adjustment, so to speak, and it wasn't too bad. For the people in Brooklyn, it had to, you know, tear their heartstrings, but uh, that's the way it goes, you know. After all these years, what keeps you going, Benny? You know, I love this game. Uh, I tried to play it. I played it varsity high school, varsity college. Um, I guess my biggest claim to fame, I played against George Herbert Walker Bush, <laughs> And we played golf together many years later, and I said to Mr. President, as long as you're in the White House, you can say anything you want. But the day we step out of the White House, remember, (laughs) we both went 0 for 3, and he loved that, you know. But uh, I loved playing it, and I knew I wasn't going to go anywhere playing it, but uh, varsity college was my limit. But when I watch these fellas play, I'm so amazed. I'm still amazed because I know how hard it is. And they make it look so easy. So the charm for me is still there. The only thing wearing on me, God's been good, my health's been good and all that, is, uh, and not the travel, but away from home. You get to an age, you know, where you're sitting in a hotel room 
and you can hear the meter ticking, and that meter is your, that's your life. And you're thinking, what am I doing here in Cincinnati? Or you know, I should be home. That's what's pulling at me, and we'll eventually determine this year whether I'll continue or not. Aaron Goldsmith and Gary Hill, joined by one of our absolute favorites, the great voice of the New York Yankees, John Sterling. I'm sure you've had uh, many, many interactions with Mr. Scully over the course of many. your lifetime. Uh, tell us some of your favorites. Oh, boy, do I have a – I'm going to do this all on the air today, too, on the Yankee game. Um, this sounds a bit much. Even to me, it sounds a bit much. But I had a feeling that I knew Vin Scully was great before anyone else. Now, as a young boy in New York, listening to every single game, and somehow early on, I knew he was better. Now, a few years later, Scully said he benefited from a generation of mistakes. You know, they were so formal, and um, a lot of broadcasts were so terribly formal, and obviously, he talked to the people. Um as far as, so I really knew that. And it didn't surprise me when Walter O'Malley, who didn't like him, um, got rid of a Red Barber. And Barber came here. He did like pre and post. And Scully became the number one guy, and he was like 23 or 24. Wow. I mean, is that fabulous? Now, I have a lot of Scully stories. Uh, he had a great sense of humor. And um, anyway, he I thought he was as great as everyone else did later on. Tell us some of your favorite stories. Well, one time we're here, well, not here, we're in the other stadium, before a World Series game, and we're passing time, just schmoozing. And um, we were talking about, we both worked then, the rights were owned by Cap City's ABC. And so we were talking about the similarities, and he said, well, of course, you know, New York is a really two-team town. I mean, the Yankees and the Mets. He says, L.A. He said, Anaheim, it might as well be Pittsburgh. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the kind of humor. He had a great sense of humor. What was he like as a friend, as a guy, when you were with him away from the air? Really good guy. Um, I'll tell you a couple of dumb stories. (laughs) He came into my booth in uh, L.A. I was, you know, scribbling down lineups. And he came in and said... uh, John, he said, I just want to see if you're out of jail. (laughs) (laughs) He was as established as could be. He was as great as can be. They go to L.A., and they have no place to play. They play in the Coliseum, which is, you know, 90,000 seats, you know, which is the worst thing for baseball. And it was an un-baseball field. You know, they had put that enormous screen in left field because only 250 feet away, and Right field was about a mile and a half. And um, the people are sitting in the Coliseum. They're so far away from the field. So what do you think? They're all listening to Vin Scully. And you won't remember it because you're too young. I was on the air as a boy disc jockey when um, the term of transistor mister and transistor sister. Well, everyone had a transistor. You could hear Vin Scully all around the ballpark doing the game. So... That was, uh, and how great he was, and he educated uh, the West Coast uh, on Major League Baseball, and the rest is history, and his history was great. You know, Scully said when he retired, he was 87 or 88, and um, uh, I don't know what I've done to deserve this longevity. I mean, he lived to, 
94. Yeah, he was the greatest. I mean, it's very tough. I don't like in many places to say so-and-so is the greatest. It's how you listen to a person, whether he's a singer or, or actor or whatever. But I'd like to think he was the greatest. out of the top of the fifth inning with Roy Campanella first up and in the call to play for Lucky Strike, Vince Gully. Then, Thank you, Jerry, and good evening, everybody. Roy Campanella first up now and Bob Buell serves him a curve in for the strike on one. Campanella around as if to bunt then let it come down. Roy flied to left field in the second inning. He's 0 for 1. Campy batting 271. Campanella, Zimmer, and Newcomb the way they come up. Buell serves a breaking ball and misses. One ball, one strike. Buell right back again. Cavanella takes a curveball in the dirt. Ball two, two and one. We're in the fifth inning. Milwaukee two runs on five hits. The Dodgers no runs on two hits. The two and one pitch to Cavanella. Fastball outside. Ball three, three and one. Picking up two runs in the first inning on a single by Aaron, a triple by Adcock, and a triple single up along first for Chuck Tanner. 3 1 pitch. Campy swings around, he goes and doesn't get it. 3 and 2. Roy really letting out that time. Almost sat down. Campy swings with a high foul off third base. There'll be no play on it. Back into the crowd. Remains three and two. The Dodgers with their two hits tonight. Gilliam single to right in the first inning, and Perlo single to center in the fourth. Outside of that, the Dodger batters have been very quiet against Bob Buell. Bob ready now in the full count pitch to Campy on the corner. Got him looking as Campy was spotting to first. Campanella had thrown his bat away. He was going towards first base, and Jack Crawford said, you're out. Oh, Campy caught looking. That is the second strikeout for Bob Buell. His other strikeout came on Hodges, and they hung Perillo out to dry in the fourth inning. Here's Don Zimmer. Hit a bullet, but right at Chuck Tanner in the second inning. He's 0 for 1. Zim batting 270. Swings and runs the pitch back onto the screen. On 1. Same two ball clubs tomorrow afternoon. Don Drysdale and Gene Conley. Bill looks in, now ready, comes to the plate, and the pitch is down low. One ball, one strike. They are getting a little smoky here in the hollow where County Stadium is located, so there's a very much of a haze out in the outfield. The 1 1 pitch, Zimmer swings a hot one back of the bag and backhanded by Matthews, who makes his play. So Zimmer has hit the ball sharply twice and is 0 for 2 for his efforts. Two down and Don Newcomb coming up. There must be some kind of a machine shop or an oil refinery or something like that. If we were in Pittsburgh, you'd say it's a blast furnace. Just starting to get a little smoky. To make it tough, I imagine, for the outfielders. Don Newcomb flied to left field in the third inning. He's 0 for 1. Don batting 320. Two out, bases empty in the fifth inning. Milwaukee two, Brooklyn nothing. The pitch to Newcomb, fastball in for the strike. On one. 
Mueller beat Brooklyn eight times last year. Winds and comes to the plate, and a strike one serve. He bounces a curve. One ball, one strike. Bob Buell was most effective against Brooklyn here at County Stadium last year. Four starts, four wins, four complete games. One winner way outside. One-handed by Del Rice. Ball two. Two and one. Phillies are leading Cincinnati 4-2 at the end of three innings. That's their ball game to watch. Redlegs, after winning 12 straight, tangling with a surprising Philadelphia ball club. Buell comes back 2-1 to Newcomb, who takes a wave at a sharp-breaking curve, tried to check his swing and couldn't do it. 2-2. Two two. Oh, Deuce is wild with Newcomb the batter here in the fifth inning. Braves 2, Brooklyn nothing. Lucky strike, sending it all two. Fastball is inside, ball three. Yes, Lucky Strike, the best-tasting cigarette you ever smoked. Blowing some smoke rings to you from County Stadium in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The old checking side with Del Rice. The right-hander delivers 3-2, and the fastball is outside, and Big Nuke is on. That is the third walk given up by Bob Buell, who thus far in the ballgame has been pleasingly wild as far as the Milwaukee cause is concerned. Been around the plate, but he's had the hitters kind of loose. Heavy windbreaker being brought out to Newcomb because of the dampness in the air. Jim Gilliam waiting to the right of the plate. Gilliam singled the right field in the first inning and bounced out in the third. One for two. Oh, waiting now for Newcomb to get buttoned up. Del Rice holding up two fingers on his right hand to keep everybody in the ballgame. Two out. Two nothing. Braves, fifth inning. Buell turns on the rubber now and comes set. Checks Newcomb and delivers, and Gilliam takes up high. Ball one. On deck, Pee Reese. Dodgers had a very pleasant flight on their brand-new Convair from LaGuardia over to Milwaukee. Got in here last night. 1-0 pitch to Gilliam. A hot one wide of first and through in the right field for a base hit. Newcomb around second, going to third, and will make it easily as Aaron gets the ball back into Danny O'Connell. So the Dodgers on Gilliam's second base hit have their first man to get to second safely and now to third. Gilliam was the man to get to second safely in the first inning, and Newcomb is the first Dodger to reach third base. So Junior is two for three. Hits number three off Bob Buell and Pee Wee Reese steps in. Reese sacrificed and walked, so he's napping up officially, batting 240. One thing the outfielders have to do tonight, after all the rain we had, if there's a base hit through the infield, the outfielder must charge it. Otherwise, the ball will die on the wet grass and cause trouble. Reese takes the first pitch down low. Ball one. One and oh. Big Ernie Johnson begins to loosen up now in the Milwaukee bullpen, way out in deepest right center. The one oh pitch to Reese, a breaking ball low and outside, and Del Rice going on both knees to block it. So Buell is now in trouble. Two balls, no strikes. Sykes, Reese waiting, Buell delivers, and it's too low. Ball three. So Bob Buell now is one pitch away from loading him up. Don Newcomb at third, Gilliam at first with two outs. The three and oh pitch to Reese outside that loads the bases, and here comes Snyder. So 
they used to say in all the old movies, the natives are restless tonight. About 40,000 natives of Milwaukee stirring around a bit as the Dodgers make a decided effort now to get back in the ballgame. Bases loaded, two out on the batter, Duke Snyder, who has fly to center and struck out. Snyder stepping in with a 260 batting average. 2-0 Milwaukee in the fifth inning. Brooklyn trying to get rich in a hurry now with the bases loaded and two out. Mueller is lined up and delivers. Snyder swings and slices one foul. Off third base, it'll go to the upper deck. 0-1. Don Newcomb at third. Jim Gilliam at second. Pee Wee Reese at first. 0-1 the count to Snyder. Duke with four home runs and ten runs batted in. Brillo has had quite a spring. He has twice as many runs batted in. 20. Snyder waiting, 0-1 to count. Bill winds and delivers. The Duke swings as a high fly ball to left field. It should be an easy chance for Chuck Tanner. The left-hander comes in under it and takes it, and Bob Buell's out of the jam. For the Dodgers in the fifth inning, no runs, one hit. They leave three men. They have left six in five innings. And the score at the end of four and a half innings of play, Milwaukee two and Brooklyn nothing. Last half of the fifth inning coming on, Danny O'Connell, the first batter for Milwaukee. The Dodgers had a golden opportunity to slip away then as Bob Hughes came through in the clutch to get Snyder on a high fly ball to left field and cut down the side with the bases loaded. So as we go to play in the last of the fifth inning, it is still Milwaukee two and the Dodgers nothing. Back to play and here again is Ben. Well, Danny O'Connell has bounced out short to first and singled, beating out a trickle ball when Don Zimmer fired to first base, just not in time. O'Connell one for two, batting 268. O'Connell, Henry Aaron, and then Eddie Matthews throw some big guns moving into position. Should anybody get on deck, maybe Joe Adcock will come up. So Newcomb has all the work cut out for him now as he goes to work here in the fifth inning. Braves two runs on five hits, the Dodgers no runs on three hits. Big Newcomb goes to his windup now and slows up on the curve and misses high and inside. Ball one. Braves have left four men. The Dodgers have left six. Milwaukee two, Brooklyn nothing. Newcomb staring in, getting a sign from Campanella. Now the 1-0 pitch to Danny O'Connell. Curveball punched at, hits to the right side. Gilliam over to plug up the hole and makes his play. goes out, second to first, one up, one away. Henry Aaron has single to center and slide to right field. His fly ball to right was a belt to right center. That Brillo caught going away right near the 394-foot mark. Henry Aaron off to a tremendous jump this year. Rated perhaps the most dangerous hitter in the National League. Newcomb delivers and the pitch is in for the strike. Going one. in home runs with nine, runs batted in with 25, base hits with 40. The on one pitch down, cut on, hit off the thumbs, a high foul off third base. Zimmer coming over, but he has no play. 0-2. And also, besides leading in base hits, home runs, and runs batted in, also leads in runs scored with 27. In a sense, Henry Aaron and Fred Haney have confounded the league. They figured with Henry Aaron batting second, he would not be driving in many runs. But here he is, leading the league. 
The 0-2 pitch now to Hank. Newcomb delivers. The pitch is cut on and fouled away. Out of play in the upper deck just to the left of home plate. 0-2 the count. Lucky Strike sending it all to you from County Stadium in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And delighted to be sending a big ball game your way. Wishing you the very best wherever you may be. The 0-2 pitch to Henry Aaron, outside. Campanella had his right arm cocked, ready to fire the ball around the infield, and umpire Shag Crawford said no. One ball, two strikes. One out, bases empty, last of the fifth inning. Milwaukee two, Brooklyn nothing. Don Newcomb and Bob Buell. Newcomb staring in, Aaron kind of pinwheeling that bat like a pendulum. Now we're ready. The one and two pitch to Henry. Cut on and lined in the right center. Slashing away from Snyder. That will roll to the whale. Snyder after the ball is up with it. Aaron is around second and holds right there. As Gilliam gets the ball back to the infield. So Aaron, who was robbed of a base hit on a great running play by Frillo, placed this one into deepest right center that hooked away from Snyder. And by the time the Duke had run it down, Henry had a double. So Henry Aaron is two for three. The Dodgers to a man would certainly like to find out how in the world to fit to him, though I imagine the rest of the National League feels the same way. Newcomb now rubbing up the ball, walking out towards second base. And is having a chat with Aaron. Whatever he said, Aaron is laughing. And Newcomb now comes back. The crowd is booing, but I think Newcomb just walked off the mound and probably, as a guest, said, Aaron, what in the world do I have to do to get you out? And Aaron just grinned good-naturedly. Uh, Newcomb came walking back to the mound. The crowd, I think, thought that Newcomb was upset, but we have the glasses on him, and Don just kind of was shaking his head in admiration. All right, here's Eddie Matthews, who has popped out and fouled out. He is 0 for 2. Aaron at second base with one out. Newcomb comes set, checks Henry Aaron and delivers to Matthews, and the fastball is on the corner for a strike, on one. Sad, looks at Aaron, now delivers. A strike one pitch is cut on as a high fly ball to deep center, but Snyder's there calling. Henry Aaron tagging up. Snyder grabs the ball. Aaron bluffs and then holds, and Snyder throws a strike on a bounce to Zimmer. What a throw by the Duke. He really cut that one loose. Now we have two down. Henry Aaron remains at second base, and the batter will be Joe Adcock. You know, talking about Don Newcomb going out to second base and saying something to Henry Aaron, and Aaron laughing... Mel Ott tells a story of one time how he came up and hit a home run, and as he trotted around the base pad, the pitcher picked up the rosin bag and threw it at him. I mean, that's getting mad. By the way, the pitcher's control was not too good. He didn't hit Mel. Here's Adcock with a triple, and he flied to right. One for two. Newcomb takes a peek at Iron at second base, works the plate, and there's a ground ball to Gilliam, who's up with it cleanly, waits for Hodges, then hits him with his throw. So Adcock is retired 4-3, to three, and the Braves go out in the fifth inning. No runs. One hit. They leave one man, they have left five. And at the end of five innings of play, Milwaukee two and Brooklyn nothing. No one.
wonder he's whistling. He's happy because he bought his 1957 Olds from Rose Oldsmobile, the oldest franchise Oldsmobile dealer in the Capital District. Why, I wouldn't even consider buying my Olds from any dealer but Rose Oldsmobile. There must be a reason. There is, because Rose maintains the proper facilities for warranty work that ensures your satisfaction. Service that continues long after the sale is made. Rose Oldsmobile's modern shop contains all the latest factory-approved equipment for keeping your Olds in tip-top condition. Their careful servicemen are constantly being trained in Olds factory schools. That's the reason. That's why over 67% of Rose Oldsmobile sales are to repeat customers. Folks who come back year after year because Rose offers more. Low price plus continuing interest in your satisfaction. There is no substitute for integrity. And integrity means Rose Oldsmobile, Central and Fanning. Satisfying customers at the same location for more than 30 years. That's Rose Oldsmobile. <laughs> 